Today is March 28th, 2021. Welcome to Common Ground. This day is Palm Sunday, so happy Palm Sunday. The sermon is a meditation on this high holiday, and the speaker is Chantilly Mers Pickett. Enjoy. Before I get started, I wanted to thank you for uh, just again for everyone stepping into our service last Sunday for holding that space together. I uh, it was very healing and very powerful for me, and so I I just want to honor you all and those who stayed after and hung out. Um, I also want to say that I'm going to be preaching, and I invite you to interact or offer reflections in the chat. Um, I would love to develop almost a culture of uh, of proclaiming the word in church where it feels more dialogical um, and less sort of pedantic. Um, but I have lots to say about Palm Sunday. So <laughs> I'm going to offer a prayer and then we'll get into it. And throughout, you'll hear me ask you some questions. So feel free to move into the chat and I'll weave them in as I go. All right. Uh, so God, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and redeemer. Amen. Growing up, um, Palm Sunday was always a celebration. Uh, it would often be uh, the Sunday that kicked off all of the preparations for Easter. Because in my evangelical upbringing, we generally skipped over Holy Week and Good Friday. Uh, and instead, the week leading up to Easter was filled with a lot of preparations. So if you were in children's church, if you were in youth group, um, if you're on the worship team, Palm Sunday signaled um, an orientation towards Easter. And it was often a tone of celebration. I'm curious if Palm Sunday was like that for you, if you grew up in a particular tradition. And if not, um, why don't you head to the chat and share a little bit of what Palm Sunday felt like. And even if you don't have a lot of memories around it, or um, but just what was Palm Sunday like for you? Yes, so I would, similar to Mary, so once I walked into my church, um, there was it felt like there was really upbeat music and uh, a greeter would give me some palms. Um, and sometimes we would fold them in church. Yeah, so in children's church, we would fold palms, similar to either Christian or Nick. Um, and it was also, yeah, you would get the palm branches. Um, and so we would make them into crosses sometimes. Someone else had that. Um, there are sometimes street vendors who would sell, sell palm branches. In South Florida, Carlos said it was easy to get a lot of palm branches, I'm sure. And in Hawaii as well. All right. And um, I'm not sure if you grew up um, when I grew up, which would have been the late 90s, early 2000s, where we often heard this song from Hillsong. It was like, um, uh, he came from heaven to earth to show the way from the earth to the cross my debt to pay from the cross to the grave from the grave to the sky lord i lift your name on high there's all movements to it rachel knows it christian knows it 
right? Can you just like, you can unmute and be like, oh my gosh, 100%. Like that's, that's what we did, right? Okay. So you all with me, y'all following, y'all tracking, right? <laughs> Complete with movements, yes. I used to lead VBS, so I know the movements. I would lead kids in them. So Paul is baffled. <laughs> Welcome, Paul. Welcome into the fold. Welcome. <laughs> Craig knows too. All right. So Palm Sunday was this place of like, as a kid, I would remember feeling ah, it's this shift in the energy of the church because now we're preparing for Easter. And that song often was the Easter song and our kids would perform it. I would perform it and I'd lead the kids in it. Um, and so I want to say that because um, as I went into and a little bit about myself is that I grew up in a very conflicting theological household. My dad, uh, my stepdad was Jehovah's Witness and my mom is evangelical Christian. And so we grew up in a very fundamentalist. Um, I had a very fundamentalist childhood. Um, I love the Bible, but for a while, the Bible was almost a burden for me because I had to memorize it. I was quizzed on it. And um, and so just know that as I'm coming to you, I want to locate myself in this because um, locate myself in the culture of church that I was brought up into and also a very conflicting theological one because I won't go into how Jehovah's Witnesses and evangelical Protestantism and we won't go into that. But um, I had been on a quest as a young person. So I had I literally left the church as a, as a teenager because I was so tired of all the conflict and then I had a conversion experience as a, as a high schooler. Um, and so here I am now, did like just longing to understand who this Jesus is. And so I went into I went into undergrad and I actually studied New Testament and I studied New Testament um, with uh, wonderful professors in undergrad who who basically offered me a whole different approach to looking at Jesus because in this particular uh, program we situated Jesus in a part in a historical and political context. Um, oh, we got prizes! Yes, yes, you would get prizes. We had Bible trivia and Bible quizzing when I was in high school group. Okay. So Christian knows I went to Pepperdine. Yes, go waves. Woohoo. All right. So here I am in undergrad and I'm placing Jesus in his historical and political context. And that's when my entire theology of Jesus begins to unravel. I'm in, I'm 18. And since the point of studying New Testament and studying Jesus in his context, I've been attempting since this moment of unraveling, or we call it deconstruction here, right? I've been attempting to fashion myself. I'm in attempting to fashion myself and my own spirituality in the likeness of Jesus, but I'm trying to situate myself as a follower in my own my own historical and lived political realities. Right. And I'm and even in in my study of deconstructing Jesus and deconstructing theology, I also want to say this to you, common ground. That even after all of this, I, I still very much love Jesus. I, I'm not trying to say that as a defense. I'm literally saying this because the more I discover Jesus in my early 20s and now in my mid 30s, I can say that now I'm mid 30s, ha <laughs> ha. But I am, I am still trying to fashion myself and trying to live akin to him in this current world and political realities. 
And I, I and I and I want to say that because because this is also why I still love the Bible, even though I was indoctrinated in the Bible. I still love the Bible because there is still so much truth and so much that we don't see on its surface because we have been indoctrinated to believe that Jesus was just someone who came from heaven to earth to show us the way right from the earth to the cross and up into the sky, right? But Jesus was so, so, so much more than that. And I wanna situate us into Mark 11 because uh, there's a few dimensions to Mark 11 that I have to give the backdrop of Jesus's and what is interesting because you know, the headlines in our Bibles, right? They like to headline things. Um, and it often it often kind of guides us into interpreting the text based on the headlines. But you know, in the early manuscripts, there was no headlines, right? It says Jesus, the triumphal entry, and we talk about it as a triumphal entry, but it's really actually a humiliating entry. That's actually what I think the headline should write, but we'll go into that a little bit more, okay? <laughs> so the first dimension of this backdrop, and I want to situate us because it wasn't until college that I understand that Jewish Jesus was deeply Jewish, okay? Jesus is Jewish, all right? He's coming into Jerusalem because it's the Passover festival, and what do we what do we as as those who may maybe have raised in the church and it's okay if you haven't been raised in the church but what 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 story in the bible gives us passover and you can put it into the chat what story in the bible gives us passover and i'll give you some hints there were 10 plagues yeah doors painted red ah okay give me some more i said plagues egypt Yes, we have frogs, we have Moses. Thank you, Jill, Egypt and Moses. We have locusts, right? It's in the book of Exodus. So the final plague comes and Hebrew sons are spared if they mark their homes with the blood of, did someone just say the Prince of Egypt? Yes. <laughs> All right, so enter in Exodus 12, 12 through 14. And on that same night, uh, God says, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations, a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. Oh my gosh, you all are taking me to Prince of Egypt. Okay, y'all gotta stop. Y'all gotta stop. <laughs> all right, okay. Someone has to cue up the Prince of Egypt song after this. All right, I must move on. <laughs> so Passover is one of the most sacred Jewish holidays. And I have to say that in this time period, it has a particular patriotic overtone because it was when the Jews were liberated from Egypt and it marked their move into the wilderness towards the promised land. And the promised land in some of the imaginations was nationhood, it was sovereignty. So on Palm Sunday, the temptation has always been that we focus on the positive, right? And we often neglect the undercurrent of tragedy, particularly political tragedy and impending crucifixion. And we miss often the meaning of this day, Palm Sunday altogether. And the reality is that Jesus entered a city that was in turmoil 
people were clamoring to know who the heck was this Jesus from a distant town of Galilee in the north, okay? So a little bit about the history too, is Jesus is from the northern village of Nazareth, of Galilee, which is north of Jerusalem, which would have been situated back in the day when Judah was a, was an, uh, was a monarchy. And people of the north were rural peasant class, which means that during the, the high holy festivals, they would journey south and make a long journey south into Jerusalem. And between Galilee and Jerusalem, we're talking like 100 miles, about, I don't know, give or take. Someone can show up a map and be like, you're wrong, Chantilly. It's like 103 miles, whatever. Okay, so they're moving south to, to, to observe this. And remember, I just read Exodus 12. It is to be an ordinance for lasting generations, meaning you don't stop celebrating this. Every year we do this, okay? People were not sure who this Jesus from Galilee was. So we have to imagine that this entry into the city was charged with not only political tensions, it was charged with some religious tensions as well. Okay, Passover, that's one dimension of the backdrop of this. The second dimension I wanna add to this is Jerusalem's, the city's relationship with Rome. Okay, so every year, the Roman governor of Judea would often ride to Jerusalem from his coastal residence in the West, particularly in the city for a day like for for a week like Passover when this Jewish festival would bring a population would be typically in in Jerusalem some new testament scholars say a typical day is like 50,000 folks in Jerusalem but during Passover it would be about 200,000 people gathered who are all convening to Jerusalem so the governor would come and arrive and no masks yes <laughs> Right, exactly. <laughs> no mask. The governor would come in all of its imperial majesty to remind the Jewish pilgrim and people that Rome was really in charge. So they would commemorate this ancient, so during Passover, they're commemorating this ancient victory against Egypt, but the Romans wanted to be clear that any resistance had deadly consequences. So you have these two New Testament scholars called, uh, named Mike, Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan, who wrote this book titled The Last Week. It's like about the last week of Jesus's life and he situates Jesus in his political context. And he describes, they describe the scene of Jesus's triumphal entry as a subversive political event. And so here's how they describe this procession. Um, because Pontius Pilate, as the Roman governor, on that particular spring day in 30 CE, would have arrived like this. And I'm going to copy and paste this quote from the book. All right. It would have been a visual panoply, I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly, of imperial power. Imagine Pontius Pilate, right, riding into Jerusalem, as was customary for the governor to do during high holy seasons. Calvary on horses, foot soldiers, leather armor, helmets, weapons, banners, golden eagles mounted on poles, sun glinting on metal and gold. The sounds, 
the marching of feet, the creaking of leather, the clinking of bridles, the beating of drums, the swirling of dust, the eyes of the silent onlookers, some curious, some odd, some resentful. Borg and Crossan make, and if you're curious about the book, let me just put that also into the chat, but I'm afraid folks like Rob are gonna be researching the book while I'm preaching the sermon, but here you go. Good luck, have fun, all right? Okay, so here we are. Borg and Crossan <laughs> make the observation that there are two processions entering Jerusalem. From the east, Jesus on a donkey down from the Mount of Olives, cheered on by some followers, people who knew him, people who didn't really know him. Jesus is from the present village of Nazareth, right? And on the opposite side of the city from the west, Pontius Pilate entering the city in complete cavalry and soldiers, two processions, one with Jesus sitting on a donkey, proclaiming the kingdom of God, Pilate on a chariot, proclaiming the power of the Roman Empire. Two processions embodying the central conflict of this week, which is leading to Jesus's apprehension, right? Mockery and later crucifixion. I want to say when Jesus selected a donkey, the gospel writer of Mark, says that Jesus, it shows that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He knew the other, he knew 200,000 Jewish pilgrims would be in Jerusalem that day. And Jesus was also familiar with Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, verses chapter nine, verses nine. And let me put that also in the chat here because y'all aren't old school like me who show up to church with your Bibles. And no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah 9, 9. Jesus would have known that the people are familiar with this passage and they also know the significance of it being Passover. And Borg and Crossan say this was a direct, this moment, this entry was a direct challenge to Roman power and authority. Some say it was a counter procession. Borg and Crossan say it was a planned political demonstration. Okay, planned political demonstration. The tension of this scene is that they were already in Jerusalem, political insurrectionists. And there were also in Jerusalem, Roman sympathizers and everyone in between. Jesus was a charismatic leader. 200,000 Jewish pilgrims were already there. He could have easily led a revolt. Think about the people that were there, rural peasants who literally had nothing to lose. Another approach he could have gone would be, wow, I have a massive base that I could organize to lobby then the chief priests and scribes, and maybe our, our path forward is through reform. Maybe we can sort of lobby chief priests and scribes 
to change their policies of taxation and temple sacrifice who are oppressive to the peasant class. Why don't we reform our institutional relationship with the Roman Empire? But Jesus does not do either of those things. Okay? Mark is very clear in his gospel. Jesus heads to the temple. He looks around and says, it's late in the day. He leaves. The very next day, it says, the very next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. He talks about the fig tree. And then he goes into the temple. And what does he do? He turns it up in the temple, in the temple area, right? He lights it up. Jesus, on the very next day of this entry, uh, Luke's account is very compelling to me too, because Luke's account, it says that Jesus comes into it and Jesus weeps. He looks into Jerusalem and he weeps. He says in Luke, if only you knew the things that make for peace. Okay, Mark skips over any of that stuff. Mark just says, and in every synoptic gospel, meaning synoptic gospels are Mark, Matthew, and Luke, Jesus enter, enters Jerusalem, and the first thing he does is he starts turning things up. He goes into the temple courtyards, turns it over. He, call, he basically says, you're robbing people. Um, and, and this kind of, of political, I mean, I should say this, no, not polit public disturbance, um, Right, this kind of public, uh, people would look at this and say, man, that, that's public vandalism, right? This is destruction of property, or this is political unrest, or what did they say during the June? Um, these, these are rioters, right? These are protesters and rioters. We gotta think about this, is that Jesus could have had the option to do a violent insurrection. He had people captivated, or he could have mass mobilized for policy reform and change, but instead he chooses after this, this sort of humiliating entry as a, as a counter procession, he moves into the temple and starts agitating. He agitates. And here I have in my notes, and I'm gonna to try to say this, these are the kinds of things that can get you killed, right? This is why prophetic political movement leaders have been assassinated. Because when, when imperial powers sense that the masses are moving into deeper consciousness and deeper resistance, they need to snuff it out. This is the kind of stuff that gets you killed. So how does this tale of two processions inform us as we are closing the series of resting from the grind and we're moving into Holy Week. And I invite you to reflect again in the chat as you have been as I share my own. I grew up so often with this narrative of Jesus believing that I was on the road waving my palms and heralding this coming King. What I couldn't see and what allowed me as I studied New Testament to see the historical and political drama of this scene is that I never saw myself as being part of a white Western Christianity that had for so long aligned ourselves with imperial power. I used to think when I learned about the two processions, I used to think, oh my gosh, I have a choice here. 
I have a choice here. I can choose Pontius Pilate's procession or I can choose Jesus's procession, right? I used to think, okay, wow, how much power I have to choose. And as I get older and as I'm becoming a little bit more conscious of the ways I've been conditioned in the US empire, I feel like I actually don't have a choice between the two. My only, my only option is to leave imperial processions. I, I, I don't even see myself in Jesus's procession or as if it's in simple this or that. In fact, I'm finding myself struggling with so many of the times we're asked to pick up our palms. You know, I, I thought about this procession and I thought, man, what if our palms have just been co-opted with American flags? You know, we, we dress Jesus up in the best of our American patriotism. We make him triumphant. We put on him military regalia. Because after all, isn't Easter about Jesus being so powerful, so mighty, that he conquered the grave? That he was powerful enough to conquer death. And we pass this imagination on to our children because we can't imagine Jesus beyond imperial nationalistic imaginations. We can't even talk about something like the coronavirus without saying we have to defeat it as an enemy. Do you see how this is embedded in our consciousness? Jesus had to conquer death to be powerful and mighty. Even though if you study scripture, Jesus did not resurrect himself. The scriptures say he was raised. It's actually a passive voice. Jesus did not raise himself. He was raised. The tomb was empty. And yet this imperial imagination is so seeped into the way we interpret even Jesus. Even the way we interpret Jesus coming at the end of times. Think about how militaristic we imagine Jesus coming and returning. We are conditioned. And in this series of resting from the grind, I think it's been a time for us to, to just examine that, right, with curiosity. Let's examine with curiosity the ways we have been conditioned, the ways even our own imaginations have been co-opted, the way palms have been co-opted for American flags. We need practices. <laughs> we need practices that rest our imperial imaginations and give us a break from these imperial pressures. And I'll just kind of go into the micro for me and what this looks like. Even now, as I am here with you, I have to practice resting from my imperial imagination of what a good wife and a good mother looks like. Every single day I try to resist, I try to resist, but I am conditioned to see that the white suburban soccer mom is the ideal. And I have to undo the learning that the fact that I grew up in a single parent household that my, that my parents um, are not college graduates, um, 
but I have to undo that there is shame attached to where I come from, right? And I, and I, I don't for a second ever wanna slap myself on the back and say, wow, I really am living the American dream as an immigrant because I am now a, a, a homeowner when that really means I'm hundreds of thousands in debt, okay? That I've sort of reached some degree of success because I am stable and I enjoy a degree of comfort in my life. So what part of the imperial imagination shapes your visions of success and victory? Is success for you self-actualization, right? Like as an artist or as a writer or as a, a career professional, right? It's like, you know, is success your ability to accumulate wealth, right? Is success promotion to a higher paying job and, and giving you more sort of institutional power is success, safety or comfort for yourself or for your family. And I don't think that these things are bad things to desire. I don't think moving out of poverty and into stability is a bad thing. It is a necessary thing. But for my immigrant family, the fact that I, I have done this is like worth celebrating, right? And I struggle with how I try to fashion myself after Jesus in, our, my, in, in my current U.S. imperial context. And I want to keep saying it imperialism or empire because the illusion, the illusion. So when I think about, so back to the imagination of success is, so if someone says, well, Chantilly, you know, you've, you've bought this house and, and now you're living in the suburbs and like your kids go to these, they're going to go to these really great schools. And um, if you ask me what my vision of success would be, it was never the suburban life. <laughs> I imagine myself in the future living on a small, sustainable plot of land with my family, with generations that are going to come. I imagine practicing a future where there is a just transition where we mitigate climate change and we phase out of this extractive economy of consumption, consumerism. Like I, this is what, when I say, what is success to me? This is what I imagine. And it's so interesting that as I was typing this out this morning, the spirit was like, even in your imagination though, Chantilly, isn't your imagination still very tribalistic and US centric, right? Because I can't even imagine living a way that connects me to the struggles of our siblings in the global south, where US trade policies are still so harmful and oppressive. I can't imagine myself, right, being more connected. Uh, there's a whole movement. I got asked uh, two weeks ago to, to, to sing a spiritual and record it. And I said, uh, and it was from a group of really leftist, communist, socialist friends. <laughs> like, yeah, just, just play a song for us, we'll send it. It's for the landless movement in Brazil. And I've known about the landless movement in Brazil, but it felt for the first time that I was actually singing a song that was part of another movement that was outside of the US context. And it, it, it realized for me, it opened my eyes again, like, oh, I've been so US centric. I haven't even thought about what's going on in the rest of the world, right? 
And so, and so even as I was writing this, I was like, what is success and how is it limited to my own imperial imaginations? I was like, man, even my vision of how I want to grow old and live on this earth is limited to borders and limited to nations. And I can't even see myself and see my community as part of a global community, right? And so for me, this is my way of, of pushing past the palm, the, the American flag and picking up Jesus's palms is how does my life move towards a more global, sustainable future, right? And you may be asking yourself different questions. Yes, America first, yes. You may be asking yourself, how do I live my, how do I live my life with this America first agenda, right? Or what, what other agendas of US empire are living in me and how can I rest from them just a little bit as I move into Holy Week? Maybe we want to practice a little bit of checking our imaginations and our views of success. So today is Palm Sunday. There are two processions happening. I used to think that I could choose between the two, and now I feel my only choice is to leave the imperial one. Because I want, I long, I really do long to to really pick up the palm and say, yes, I am moving in the world as Jesus did in peace, in the absurdity of nonviolence, in liberation, in healing. And for me, it has to begin with examining the ways in which I have internalized imperial imaginations of success, victory, might, power, strength, and how I can release them. How we can all release them. So there are two processions. How are we leaving the imperial one? Is what I offer.